Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hi, I'm Rick Martinez. I am a cookbook author and a daddy to the most perfect, beautiful chocolate lab rescue named Choco. And I'm Carla Lolly Music. I'm also a cookbook author, video host, and the adoptive parent to two perfect felines, Peggleton Geggleton McGee and King Jeffrey Orchada from the Royal House of Orchada. Good grief. <laughs> Wait, Peggleton Meggleton? <laughs> no, no. Peggleton Geggleton McGee. McGee. And King Jeffrey Orchada. Orchada as in like the drink. Oh, yes. Oh, Okay. From the Royal House of Horchata. From the Royal House of Horchata, yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> they really own their names. <laughs> Rick and I have been solving and laughing our way through food problems together for more than a decade in test kitchens, in videos, and at magazines. And now we're doing it here on Borderline Salty, the show where we take your calls, boost your confidence, and make you a better, smarter, and happier cook, just like us. Today, we'll weigh in on all the good stuff inside those shrimp heads, how to use up the veggies in your CSA box, and give you our best tips for cooking steak. And we'll be sitting down with one of our favorite drag queens, Ms. Cracker, to hear her own kitchen nightmare story. That's right. Buckle up. We've got a lot of exciting things to get to this week. But before we dive into it, I just want to share that this segment of Tell Me Something Good is brought to you by Genova Premium Tuna. Elevate your next salad, appetizer, or entree with the mouth-watering Mediterranean flavor of hand-selected yellowfin and albacore tuna fillets. Visit genovaseafood.com to learn more. Okay, now, Rick... Tell me something good. Carla, I have been in New York for four days, and I have eaten around the city, eaten more than probably humanly possible, and at the end of every day, 
I finish with a Sunday. Love you for that. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but I push through. <laughs> I'm a professional. This is what I do for a living. The Sunday at Thai Diner is epic. 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 So it is coconut gelato, coconut caramel, palm sugar, whipped cream, toasted coconut, toasted peanuts in this, like, beautiful etched glass goblet that appears with, you know, drips of cream and and melty goodness everywhere. I mean, you taste the whipped cream and you're like, why is this so good? I've eaten whipped cream, you know, all my life. (laughs) All the ways. All All the ways. And I'm like, did you put MSG in this? Why am I, like, addicted to this? And it's like, it's palm sugar, an amazing ingredient. People should be using more palm sugar. And more Sundays should be served in a footed goblet. A hundred percent. And more people should end their days with a Sunday. <laughs> Amen. You cannot go to bed unhappy when you've eaten a Sunday. No, you cannot. You will be a happier person in the morning when you get up because you had a Sunday. Sing it, sister. Amen. Okay, Carla, <laughs> tell me something good. You know what's good, Rick? What's good? Butter. A hundred percent. You know how it's really good? On a sandwich. Amen. I was reminded this weekend, butter on sandwiches is just the best. Every sandwich I had growing up, I swear to God, my mom put butter on all of our sandwiches. And it's because it's really good. I made myself a sandwich yesterday that was good bread, lightly toasted, delicious salted butter from this farm up near her that she gets these like little adorable little tubs of cultured Mm. butter that have discernible little bits and flakes of salt that you can feel when you have the butter. Put that butter down. There was good Italian ham. There was lettuces that were dressed. I put salt and pepper. I closed it up, and it was amazing. Oh, Dijon mustard. Gotta have the Dijon. Butter and Dijon is such a good combo. Great combo. Okay, so to our listeners, let's recap. (laughs) The perfect day and the recipe for ultimate happiness A buttered sandwich Mm -hmm. with Dijon, Mm -hmm. followed by a coconut sundae. Yeah. You could put a few hours in between. (laughs) Or not. Just keep going. Just live in the happiness. Right. That's a good day. That's a very good day. I think it's time for some color questions. Dr. Carla, Dr. Rick, this is Amanda, and I have my conundrum for you. So... I love to cook, and one of the things, though, that is my Achilles is doing a great steak. Should we call it a Miss Steak? I watch all the videos, I read all the articles, and I always come up with a really terrible steak that's burnt on the outside and, like, bloody awful on the inside. So I'm just looking for some tips on the meat, on the pan, on some suggestions. Any tips would be great. Amanda, stay tuned. We've got solutions. (laughs) I love that she said bloody awful. A real conundrum. Sometimes the simplest things are the most befuddling. Right. I mean, I think the most at least seemingly obvious thing is that the heat is just too high. Yeah. So whenever you have something burnt on the outside and raw in the middle, that means the heat is too high, your outside is burning before the heat has a chance to penetrate and warm up the middle. It might also suggest that your inside is too cold. So if you took steak right out of the fridge and threw it in a super hot skillet, it's going to stay pretty cool on the inside while the outside burns. If you have a really thin, cheap, not great quality pan, 
um, you also will have trouble with regulating and controlling the heat where it's just so thin that it just scorches, you know, through. But let's go through basic staking. I'm a frequent turner for anything that is in a super thin stake. So something about three quarters of an inch, an inch or thicker. I fully believe in the frequent turning method, which is kind of turning the stake back and forth every two minutes or so, two to three minutes. So you gradually build up a crust on the outside while at the same time sort of regulating the temperature between the top and the bottom. So imagine just putting a raw steak down in the pan and cooking it on one side until it's very brown. The side that's closest to the pan, there will be the most sort of heat transmission. But the top side of the steak, which is, you know, an inch above the surface, is going to stay cooler. When you turn it back and forth, you're gradually warming both sides and building up the sear. For something around an inch thick, I think like eight minutes, eight to ten for nice medium rare. And that's, you know, from there you can kind of do whatever. Resting the steak, very important, at least ten minutes. I even like to rest longer. I like room temperature steak, but... Also, some people like to tent with foil their meats, regardless of whether it's a steak or a turkey. When it's resting? When it's resting. And the thing about that is you're trapping heat. And so if you've cooked your protein to the perfect temperature and then you tent it, the meat will continue to increase like further than you actually want. Yeah. There's always carryover. Right. You're basically insulating it. So if you've got like the perfect medium rare and then you put a piece of foil on it, it's going to actually go into the medium range. So you need to make sure that you're not covering it with anything. Just let it live and let it be free. Tenting. It's so true. Recipes used to always say tent with foil. Yeah, and it's like nothing's going to happen. No, just leave it alone. Yeah. And the last thing I'll mention for Amanda is once it's rested, learn how to find the grain of the steak Mm. for slicing it because the proteins, like ropes, they're going to be going lengthwise or on a diagonal or across. And just find them and then angle your knife to intersect them. And that's a good rule even if you're cutting a tender steak or something with a lot of texture in it like skirt. Can't wait to hear how it turns out. Hi, Carla and Rick. My name is Zach. I've been a vegan for like uh, many years now, and I cannot make a good homemade broth. They always end up tasting too flat or too salty, you know, not enough depth. So I really love to know your take on a good uh, homemade vegan broth. I think that's a great question. I I love making vegan and vegetarian recipes. And I always start from the point of treating my vegetables like I would meat. And I think that this is no different. So like when you're making a really rich, flavorful bone broth, a lot of times you will roast the bones and also the vegetables. That's going to help you a lot because it's going to concentrate the flavor of the vegetables You know, you just want to give them a quick, rough chop, get them on a sheet tray, toss them in a little bit of olive oil, and then put them in a 450 oven until they get really nice and caramelized. It may take between 30 and 45 minutes, but that's a very critical, very flavorful 45 minutes. You know, there's also a lot of things that you can add to your broth to make it more flavorful and give it sort of that umami burst. 
like mushrooms. I love adding, I mean, if I have fresh mushrooms or I save my my mushroom scraps, but I also always have dried mushrooms like shiitake in the pantry. Just drop a handful of those in there. You'll get sort of like that nice, rich, earthy, umami flavor. Yeah, all of that richness and depth, but it doesn't make it taste like mushroom broth. I think also from the Asian pantry, kombu is a great thing to add to your stocks. And you don't even need to simmer a stock for that long to get all of the benefit of having that in there. I think your advice about roasting the vegetables is so smart because you're not only concentrating the flavor, but you're like complexifying it, if that's a <laughs> if that's a word. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> Complexify your veg. It's so catchy. It is. Are you listening, Webster? <laughs> Complexify 2022. Um you're getting not only like sweetness, but also that bittersweet flavor that comes from caramelization and browning. So it's just going to be like a lot more aspect to the vegetable than like a sweet carrot. But I think the reason the stocks or the broths are coming out salty is because there's not enough in there. So you're adding salt to it. And basically, you're just making like salty water. Right. I never, ever salt my broths and my stocks. I think, you know, one of the things that he said is that his broths are tasting very flat. For an animal protein-based stock, I always cook, you know, long, you know, like hours and hours and hours. For a vegetable stock, I'm only going to go maybe an hour, hour and a half. To me, after about an hour, they've released all of their flavor that they're going to give you. And after an hour, they're going to start to develop off flavors. Yeah. Another thing that I like to do is if I've added herbs at the beginning of the stock making— to then hold back like a handful of them. And so at the end of the stock, when you're five minutes away from pulling it, you can just throw those fresh herbs in at the end and their fresh flavor will infuse without sort of getting cooked off. And that can be like another layer to bring to the broth. Oh, that's a great idea. I like that a lot because it's basically like you're making a tea. And you can do that, honestly, with some of the other aromatics too. So for example, some ginger, some raw ginger, or even a squeeze of lemon or lime. That'll actually add a little bit of acidity and, and help the flavors out as well. Great tips. Next caller, please. Hi, Carla and Rick. My name is Jen. Every year I sign up for my local CSA but I am just one person. How do I use all of that produce? I feel so bad because it seems like at least a third or half of it go to waste every week. Is the solution that I just throw everything in a soup every week? It just is so much work to prep and eat that many vegetables every single week. So I'm hoping you have some tips for how to use an immense amount of vegetables, and maybe how to prep them a little bit faster so that I literally don't spend hours every day just chopping. Yeah, this really resonates with me. I did my first CSA this year, but also just as a person who cannot control themselves at the farmer's market, I have come home with produce hauls from the farmer's market and been like, I am so, I can't even fit it in the fridge, you know? Like, what <laughs> have I done? One just general piece of advice, cooked vegetables take up a lot less room than fresh ones. And also, once something is cooked, it will have a little bit longer shelf life. CSA vegetables tend to store very, very well because they're so fresh. But, you know, especially big bunches of greens, it takes up half the fridge. But if you strip those off, chop up the stems, and just braise the greens right straight out of the gate, then you can use that in like five 
different ways. You can make a pasta out of it. You can make a grain bowl with it. I have used big bunches of Swiss chard to make like a cooked Swiss chard pesto. Like you take the really big thing and just make <laughs> make it smaller and you won't waste as much. But wow, yeah, this is definitely a very real challenge. Yeah, and weirdly here, tomato season is the winter. Uh-huh. And I have friends here who have a ranch. And so last, I think, January or February, we went to my friend's ranch, and they literally had trash bags of heirloom tomatoes. Boo-hoo. Uh, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> first of all, like, why are they in trash bags? Like, what are they? what's happening? I don't understand this. And they're like, we can't, like, we don't have enough people to give these. To-. I'm like, okay, well, I'm taking a trash bag home. So I, I get home, and now I literally have, like, a 30-gallon trash bag full of tomatoes. And I'm like, oh my god, what the hell? And so— A literal bushel. A literal bushel. And so, you know, like, I roasted some. So I think that's one easy trick for any vegetable, really. You throw it in a sheet tray. Yeah. And depending on what you want to do, you can, like, do a harder roast and get color. All I'm doing is, like, removing water. Yeah, roasting, I think, also is super smart if you have lots of different vegetables because— You don't really have to do much. You don't really even have to peel most vegetables. So you could just, like, get the dirt off of them, throw them on the sheet tray, lots of olive oil, salt, pepper. You could add a dry spice if you want to. Goodbye. Throw them in there. I also think pickling. Like, I don't think people pickle enough things. And it's not just for cucumbers. And so, like, I've done this with beets. I've done this with squash. They also don't take up very much room, and they last forever. Welcome to Borderline Salty. How can I help you? Oh my God. Hi, my name is Devin and I have a bizarre question. So I love to cook and my husband has an issue with parsley. Anytime we try to use parsley, he says to him, it tastes like dead fish. And of course, everybody knows about, you know, cilantro and stuff, but I have never heard of anybody having such an aversion to parsley. And I was wondering if you have ever heard of that. And or if there is maybe an herb that is similar to parsley that can substitute it for color and garnish that doesn't remind my husband of dead fish or like pond water. (laughs) So, love you both. Dead fish or like sick frogs? The pond makes me think of frogs. Yeah, so either way, there's a dead animal floating in a stagnant pond. That's not that's not a recipe I want to make. I mean, I've eaten a lot of parsley in my life. And like sometimes it's like wet grass or something. You get a little mulchy maybe, but like dead fish, come on. I mean, I think it's an easy fix. I mean, first of all, use what he likes. So, I mean, that would be my first question. Like I would just ask him, like, what is it that you like? <laughs> what doesn't <laughs> taste like dead fish to you? But then also, you know, I think you need to think about the dish itself. Right. And so as far as substituting, I think I'm a little looser about this than you are. Like for me, parsley is in the category of like tender herbs, like the ones that rustle in the breeze as opposed to, you know, being (laughs) (laughs) more. I like that. There's like rustle in the breeze herbs and then there's like um, evergreen forest herbs, you know. The tenders in the breeze, like, in my mind, I'm pretty loose with those, except for mint, which I feel like is a very strong flavor. But I would just be like, okay, cool. Then use chives, use chervil. You know, tarragon can be a little bit forward, so maybe use half the amount of tarragon. But I I think you think about flavor a little bit more specifically. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if this dish was more Italian-y, then I would probably lean more towards basil or even, like, a fresh oregano, like, mm-hmm. just a little bit of that. 
or marjoram. I love marjoram as well. If it was more Asian-y or Mexican-y, I would go the cilantro root. But I also think that like whatever you decide to use, you just need to cut it back. Because I know when I write a recipe and I ask someone to use parsley, I'm probably going to ask you to use a lot of it. And again, it's partly because it's it's such a neutral flavor. And I might also be using it as that pop of green. And so if I'm using something like basil or mint that is very strong and can easily dominate a dish quickly, I wouldn't want you to use a cup of that. So I might start off with like a quarter cup chopped as opposed to a full cup or even a half cup of parsley. Yeah, I feel like he could like start by leaving it out and then maybe with the herbs, if he's not sure how it's going to taste, put them on the table and add them to your dish. And then you could kind of taste as you go and decide if those flavors are good together before fully committing. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you love parsley and he hates it, just chop it up, leave it out of the dish and put it on the table and then you can put it on your thing and he can not put it on his and then problem solved. Right. If you love someone, set their parsley free. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for our next segment, Total Kitchen Nightmare. You might remember Carla's steak disaster story. Or you may recall Rick's Plum Cake Inferno back from our BA Test Kitchen days. We could go on for hours with our own kitchen nightmares. But in this segment, we're bringing our friends and culinary heroes to share their kitchen disasters. And this week, we have our amazing first guest, Ms. Cracker. Hello, Cracker. Hello. Hello, Rick and Carla. I'm so glad to join you today. We are all extremely excited, and it is no secret that in addition to being an amazing drag queen, a writer, and comedian, you are a great chef. Oh, thank you. And we have cooked together. Yeah, we have. So I know that for a fact. And behind every great chef is an even greater story of culinary catastrophe. Lucky if it's only one. So, Ms. Cracker, we want to know, what's your total kitchen nightmare? Well, you know how a Christmas carol starts with, Marley was dead to begin with. You know, you have to know, <laughs> like, you must know that. Otherwise, none of the things that follow will seem fantastic. My story starts with, first of all, I am obsessed with eggs. Okay. Like, I have had two eggs of some kind every morning for as long as I can remember. And my mom... She made coddled eggs in egg coddlers, soft-boiled eggs. We would have them in the little egg cups, and we'd have fried eggs and scrambled eggs and omelets and quiches and everything. Like, we were just obsessed. And as soon as my mom got the opportunity, she got chickens so that we could have fresh eggs. You know what I mean? It's like the things that my family goes through to make sure that there are two eggs for every person in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. It's a lot. It's an emotional core. So... One time, it was 2012, and I had decided to go on a cooking journey because I was saving money to go on my first solo trip out of the country. And I had decided that I was going to learn to cook so that I wouldn't spend money on going out, wouldn't be ordering breakfast sandwiches, which is another egg thing that I have in the morning. (laughs) Um, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to cook new kinds of eggs. And now maybe you can help me with this because I looked all over the New York Times website. There's a kind of egg that you make, like essentially you poach it in oil. Yeah, an olive oil fried egg, also sometimes called like a Spanish fried egg. 
that sounds right. Yeah. So (laughs) in the Times, in the food section, there was this article about how easy it was to make one of these eggs. They recommended a large, like, deeper frying pan. And all I had at the time, because I didn't have any money, was this tiny little cast iron skillet that looked like a doll's skillet. (laughs) And I was like, it's going to be fine. (laughs) It's just an egg. It's just an egg. So I wake up one morning, and I always take 10 minutes to get ready for work at that point in my life. And so I wouldn't even bother to get dressed before I ate my breakfast. So I went in bear carnation to my kitchen and looked down at the instructions and being an Aries, I was like, well, I get it in overview. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I understand. Uh So I don't need to read the specifics. And I just took all the olive oil that I thought was appropriate, Mm -hmm. heated it all up till it was very, very hot. Oh, God. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I was like, this has to be how you do it. Because, like, (laughs) in my experience with eggs, this is what you do. So then I tilted it towards me so that there was, like, a big pool of oil. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Because I was like, we want to drop the egg in the oil. It's like oil's in the title for a reason. Like, we want lots of oil. So I did what my sister and I refer to as the Meryl Street because she has this thing in movies where no matter what character she plays, if they're cooking, she always cracks her eggs with one hand only. Wow. Meryl. She's a goddess. Yeah, so she can do two eggs at one time and crack and split. So I held the frying pan with one hand, did the crack and split with the other, and threw it oh my God. into the hot oil. <laughs> As it was tilted towards me, and this big streak of hot oil went right down the center of my body, of my naked body. All Mm. the things that my Y chromosomes have made, have wrought. Oh my God. (laughs) Were covered in boiling hot oil, and it was so shocking that my mind went totally blank, (laughs) and... I didn't, like, scream or anything. I didn't make any noise. I just turned off the oven, walked the path straight back into my bed, (laughs) and I called into work. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wait, I have to ask, when you called into work, what did you tell them? I told them something like, it's not happening today, (laughs) which I think... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Ms. Cracker, if you were to give this whole experience, if you were to write this experience up as a short story, what would be the title? I I guess I would call it On Nuts. <laughs> or oil vey, I guess. Oil, oil vey. Oh my no, god. I that. that is genius. <laughs> so, I guess the lesson is here when you're trying something new, always be confident, mm-hmm. but remember to empty your glass so that it can be filled if that makes sense like let go of the things you think you know so that you can learn from a text or a chef. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. <sighs> things might come to a head, mm-hmm. as it were. 
(laughs) (laughs) And maybe wear an apron. Oh, yeah. And also the obvious lesson, don't cook naked. Well. I mean, you make a salad when you cook (laughs) naked. See, then there's just enough. I mean, well, I guess you could cut something, but. Yeah, you don't deep fry a turkey. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I'm thinking about it now. If you're like trying to impress a date or something, you can get dressed, cook breakfast, and then undress again and be like, oh, I just threw this together. You know what I mean? Totally. But put yourself first, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Save the naked for later. Yeah. (laughs) Also, to nerd out for a minute, neurologically speaking, the first time you put your hand on a hot burner, the information has to travel all the way up your arm to your brain and then back from your brain to your arm to tell your arm to move. Right. But once your system learns that hot is bad, it actually just travels into your nerves and then your hand reacts before the pain even gets to your brain. Oh, amazing. Oh, wow. So your body learns from bad experiences. So you actually need to build up a catalog of those things to teach your body how to respond to pain before your brain can even do it. She's got a slow brain, so she needs... (laughs) (laughs) I would argue the same is true for emotional pain. That is very true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You gotta you gotta go through those experiences to learn to pull away. When you're young, you date someone for five years, and you're like, "Wait, <laughs> this is not fun." And as you're getting to your late thirties or beyond, you're on the first date, and you're like, "Listen, this is gonna last four years, and that's it." <laughs> I'm gonna draw the line at four. Yeah, drawing the line. <laughs> So we've learned we don't fry naked, and we have an expiration date on relationships. That's right. And in both cases, the genitals might get hurt. (laughs) (laughs) A full circle moment. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tank Sinatra. And I'm Investigator Slater. And together we co-host a podcast called Psychopedia, which is a true crime podcast infused with comedy, making it a crimedy. Each week, Investigator Slater brings us a wild and thoroughly researched true crime case. I'm here to digest it all and react just like you probably are right there on the other side of the microphone. Somehow, I've got to present each case with the detail and respect it deserves, while also cracking up at Tank's perfectly timed humor and thought-provoking questions. Listen to and follow Psychopedia on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So before we get out of here, it's time for No Thank You Please. This is the part of the show where we discuss the foods we maybe don't love yet and open ourselves up to giving them the try they deserve. So Carla, what are we talking about this week on No Thank You Please? Well, this week we are talking about shrimp heads. Ugh. Love shrimp heads. Yeah, let's just level set for a second here. I think we are both big fans. Huge fans. Huge fans. Love a shrimp head. My God. All of the flavor of the shrimp is in the shrimp head. It's sort of like citrus, right? The juice is great, but 
the flavor is in the zest. Shrimp, same thing. So I feel like a lot of people, that's the leap they have to take. They have to get over whatever the squiggly, iggly feelings are about it and just, like, get in there. Exactly, yeah. And I feel like you need someone to kind of walk you through it. So, you know, a few years ago, I did this dinner theater where I cooked for a group of theater goers. And as part of the performance, I actually demonstrated to a group of mildly inebriated guests how to properly suck the head off of a shrimp. Mm. And it was a very fun experience. And I was kind of like, you know, making fun of just the act because it is a whether you think it's gross or not, it's just kind of a bizarre thing to pull a head off a creature and then just like drink the juice out. But (laughs) when you make light out of it and you're doing it in this performative way, I think people were more apt to try it. And I think that night I converted a lot of people into the must-suck-head <laughs> camp. <laughs> I also think that, you know, as a chef, there are some preparations for shrimp that I like to keep the shell and head on yeah. to preserve the flavor yeah. and, and the moisture of yeah. the shrimp. But I also think that there are a lot of people that when a chef puts a dish of prawns in their shell and with the head in front of them, they don't know how to eat it especially if you're in a fancy restaurant, you don't want to look uncouth or like uneducated. And I think that moment kind of opened people up like, okay, I'm going to do this and no one's going to judge me for it. And then we're just going to all slurp some head. (laughs) Just out there changing lives, aren't you? (laughs) One at a time. So for me, whenever I think about shrimp heads, I remember this one episode of Anthony Bourdain where he goes to a restaurant north of Barcelona, and it's like right on the coast, and it's this restaurant that's famous for their seafood and how fresh it is, and everything is just cooked on the plancha. So like salt, and that's it, high heat. And he's eating the shrimp, and it's cooked in the shells, and he peels the shell off, and he eats the flesh of the body. And then he just picks up that perfectly cooked, beautiful shrimp head, and he looks at it, and he goes, this is God's sauce. And then proceeds to, like, put the opening into his mouth and just suck all of the juices out of it. And it stuck with me so much because it's like— As food creators, you're always trying to, like, make an amazing flavor out of lots of things and capture this. And it's just like, no, just this thing, this perfect thing at its most perfect freshness, cooked perfectly, is the most amazing flavor it could ever be. Yeah, honestly, it's like asparagus, right? You know, the tip where you tell people, like, just bend it, and then where it breaks is where it breaks. It's like, that's the same thing. You put one hand on the body, one hand on the head, and then just bend, and then it will come off. Don't look at it. Just put it in your mouth, (laughs) throw your head back, and swallow. It's God's sauce. Amen. And that's it for this week's episode of Borderline Salty. But don't you worry, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can find recipes and recommendations from this week's episode in our show notes. And you can hear more from our guest today, Ms. Cracker, on her podcast, She's a Woman. Or give her a follow on Instagram at Ms. M-I-Z underscore Cracker. If you have a question or a fear you want us to help you through, you can always leave us a voicemail at 833-433-FOOD. Our number again is 833-433-3663. 
Borderline Salty is an original production by Pineapple Street Studios. We're your hosts. I'm Rick Martinez. And I'm Carla Lolly Music. You can find our social handles in the show notes for this episode. Natalie Brennan is our lead producer. Janelle Anderson is our producer. Our managing producer is Agarenish Chagre. Our assistant producer is Maria Roscoe. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Mixing and engineering by Davy Sumner and Jason Richards. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. Original music from our very own Raj Makija. Additional music from Vincent Vega, Spring Gang, and Glovebox, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Legal services for Pineapple Street are provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochers. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. We appreciate Amanda, Zach, Crystal, Jen, and Devin for calling in this week. And thanks to you for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye! Bye. (laughs) See you next time. Adios! Call me. We're waiting for your call. (laughs) 